This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about one of the most important figures in the New Testament. Therefore, one of the most important figures in world history, John the Baptist. He came living a radical life and preaching a baptism of repentance, which I think has a direct bearing on one of the questions that we all have about who we are. First, I'll read a little bit from the gospel about him, and then we'll look at what that means a little bit more closely. John's father, Zachary, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his holy prophets he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us, to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. There are a lot of passages we could read about John the Baptist, but that seems like the right one to start with, because the most important things about John the Baptist were actually prophesied when he was an infant still. The Gospel of Luke actually spends more time talking about the conception and birth of John the Baptist than it does about the conception and birth of Jesus. And in fact, one of the major stories of the infancy of Jesus is the, um, or the conception of Jesus, is the visitation, and that centers around John the Baptist's family. John's father was Zechariah, a priest, and while the angel Gabriel came to Mary to tell her that uh, the news of Jesus's conception, the angel Gabriel went to the father, Zechariah, actually in the temple to break the news about his impending conception uh, of John the Baptist with Elizabeth, his wife. When Gabriel appeared to him in the temple, Zechariah did not believe the news that he would conceive a child in his old age. And as a result, he was struck dumb. He was unable to speak in the gospel until John was born. From his very birth, John was expected to be a very big deal. The gospel quotes uh, says the gospel, quote, All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? That's when Zechariah said the words that we began by reading in the gospel. He knew who his son would be, the last prophet in a long line of prophets, and the one to prepare the way for the Messiah, the son of David. A couple of things to keep in mind. Though Mary and Joseph went to visit John the Baptist in the story of the visitation, the child Jesus probably did not know the child John the Baptist. 
For one thing, Jesus lived way up north in Nazareth, so it was a long haul to get down to where John was. But for another thing, since Elizabeth and Zechariah were both very old when John was born, he was probably orphaned as a young boy. And there are various ways that an orphaned priest's son would be taken care of. But there's great evidence that John the Baptist may have actually been associated with this Essene community, a group we know a lot about ever since the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1940s. Today, there's several brands of Catholics. We all think of conservatives and liberals, for instance, but in theological circles, there are many more brands of Catholics. In Jesus and John the Baptist's day, there were, there were Pharisees and Sadducees, kind of the conservatives and liberals of their day, or better, they were the ideal... Uh, or better, they were the ideologues and pragmatists of their day. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees will come up a lot in this podcast, but I like to think of them in this way, ideologues and pragmatists. So the Pharisees were the ideologues. Ideologues are true believers who make the truth their own kind of personal weapon. This is true then and it's true now. They take the truth as something they can totally grasp and something which they do totally grasp and wield aggressively. That's what the Pharisees did. They grabbed the truth like a rock they could throw at people. Pragmatists are out for their own goals. They will take up the truth or drop it depending on whether it serves their goals at one given moment. That's uh, who the Sadducees were. They had compromised themselves such that they could live with the Romans and that meant dropping certain truths, but picking them up when, when they wanted them. But there were also the Essenes. These were like the principle-centered people that we might encounter today. Principle people see the truth as a rock that they kind of grasp onto in a storm rather than something that they own. They don't own the truth. The truth saves them. Well, what was discovered in the Dead Sea was a library of documents uh, that were from this community that lived in the time of Christ. They were kind of the mystics of their time, or better, the monastics of their time. This group highly valued celibacy. They practiced ritual baths, oddly enough, that were very much like baptism. Uh, they loved the prophet Isaiah. They expected the Messiah to come, and they used language about building a highway. They expected the Messiah to come and used language about building a highway for him. In fact, they Way, the place they lived, east of Jerusalem, was right along the pathway that they expected the Messiah to take to come to Jerusalem. And they were kind of saw themselves as correctives of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Fascinatingly, they believed that they had to eat in community. We'll see this pop up later when we talk about the Last Supper. But they believed that they had to eat in community and that if a member was ever apart from the community, that member had to kind of not eat with anybody, but just eat what they could find. And we have in Matthew, uh, we hear that now John himself wore a camel's hair garment and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he's living like a separated Essene who has to eat what he finds. The Essenes also had a high appreciation for the hereditary lines of priests, and they took young people into their order to kind of take care of them and to kind of like a minor seminary, help them grow into their community. So it would make sense if the young John the Baptist had been taken in by them 
And uh, it would make sense that if he were following their customs, a lot of the things that we know he did were the kinds of things he would do. So when John appears as an adult, we hear this about him in the Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourself, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's John the Baptist's message, and it's important to our day because it tells us who we are. So the age-old question that we all ask is, are human beings good? Well, if they are, then why do we do so many bad things? Are human beings bad? And if we are, then why do we do so much good? We ask this about ourselves. Am I a good person? I've done some good, haven't I? Am I a bad person? I've done some pretty terrible things, haven't I? The answer to that puzzle is repentance. Repentance means to recognize the bad you've done, stop it, and move on. This is where Will Smith comes in. Will Smith said something in a very kind of ham-handed way months after the infamous incident where he hit Chris Rock hard across the face on stage at the Oscars. People doubted his repentance in his initial comments at the Oscars, but in the summer after, he was truly sorry and gave a very real apology. Toward the end, he says, quote, I am deeply remorseful, and I'm trying to be remorseful without being ashamed of myself, right? I'm human, and I made a mistake, and I'm trying not to think of myself as a piece of... Well, we'll end the quote there. He could have used better words maybe throughout, and I th- but I think we all understand what he's trying to get at. We all want this. We all want to recognize when we did something wrong, feel sorry about it, and not let it define us. That's what repentance does. That's what people love about John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist for the same reason I hate stylish movie heroes like James Bond or like some of the people Will Smith plays. Who does he play? Anyway, I hate James Bond types because... Someone who defines himself by sexual conquest as a loser who can't conquer himself. And the strongest man isn't the man who's stylish and clever and admired for winning. It's the person who stands his ground for what is right, even when he knows he's bound to lose. John the Baptist's style is radical, and radical means from the roots. The difference between him and celebrity heroes, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees for that matter, could not be sharper. John lives in difficulty in the desert. They live in comfort in the city. John's rough appearance shows his reliance on providence. They wear their virtues for all to see, showing off with their style and possessions. John the Baptist should be especially popular in the 21st century because we value authenticity so much. Jesus will later praise John for his authenticity. 
He'll say, what did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in fine clothing? Those who wear fine clothing are in royal palaces. Then why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Then he says something amazing. He says, Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. When the second person of the Trinity says that about you, you are great indeed. Jesus loves John for exactly the reasons we love John, because he is fully himself, not dressed up or puffed up, but plain and honest. This is the ultimate goal of the spiritual life, to be the opposite of the spiritual narcissists Pope Francis likes to talk about, or to become who you are, as Pope John Paul II puts it. That's the kind of humility that's intensely attractive. False humility is revolting. Quiet humility is charming. But John the Baptist's humility is thrilling. He doesn't make a grand show of humility, but he's not a wilting flower either. He makes it clear that he's an important force to be reckoned with in the world, then makes it equally clear that he's waiting for somebody who is even greater than him. His humility is like a blinking construction sign pointing to Christ with such force that you don't even realize that what you're looking at is itself a wall of brilliant lights. Last is devotion to the truth is important. Often we think of preaching the truth as mean or divisive. But preaching to prepare for the coming of the Lord is no more mean or divisive than telling people to prepare for winter. Winter is coming, whether you like it or not, and the truth is you need to change a lot about your life to get ready for it. John's message is radical in the way it's radical to tell people to get firewood and blankets and coats, right? He says the Lord is coming and we need to change dramatically to be pure like him. Well, we do. Remember, the fallen angels rejected God in eternity and were immediately driven out of God's presence. They turned their love to opposition, and God is all holy and cannot tolerate what is opposed to him. Human beings, started with the very heads of our family, rejected God in time. And we, in time, have to be driven out from his presence. But we still have time to love and turn back until we enter eternity upon our deaths and it's too late. So we need to accept God and love him and so be saved. John tells the crowds to prepare the way of the Lord through an impossible construction project. Make straight his paths. Every valley should be filled and every mountain and hill should be laid low. These words point to kind of the drama that is present in each of our lives as we approach God and approach Christ. John is meant to be a real model for every Christian. The gospel is telling us in no uncertain terms, in order to hear God and to be his voice, you have to go out into the desert. From the beginning of time, listening to the wrong voices has been at issue and a disaster in the world. Adam and Eve listened to the snake, disaster ensued. Noah's neighbors wouldn't listen to Noah, disaster ensued. Everyone from Judas in the passion to you yesterday has listened to the wrong voice with disastrous consequences. On the other hand, biblical heroes from Abraham to the Blessed Virgin Mary to you today uh, have heard the right voices and done the right things as a result. The problem is you can't hear God in a noisy room. Carmelites and Trappists go into great silence to hear him. Well, we lay people can't do that. 
but we need to create oases of deserts in our crowded lives to hear him. So the first way we need to imitate John the Baptist is to go into a desert and listen to him where we can hear. But the second way is to undergo this kind of arduous project of building interior pathways, that, and this requires real effort. But once we find a place we can hear him, the gospel makes clear that welcoming Christ is an arduous project of building interior pathways that require real effort. So remember, John is saying, make straight his paths by leveling mountains and filling in valleys. Well, in America, we know exactly what that means. Europeans are often startled when they travel on our highways and interstates, which instead of going gently around hills and mountains as they do in Europe, plow right through them. Uh, We cut cross sections out of hills and put a highway right through them. Uh, And this shocks them. They've never seen this before. Well, this is very American. Our interstates actually treat us as if each of us are kings who should not be slowed down by mountains or valleys in our hurry to get where we're going. In reality, there's only one king who deserves that treatment, and that's Jesus Christ. How do we do this? In what way do we prepare for our, the Lord? Origin of Alexandria asked, and he answered, Surely not a material way. Should not the way be prepared for the Lord within? Should not straight and level paths be built in our hearts? This is the way by which the word of God has entered. The word dwells in the spaces of the human heart, end quote. The clear implication is that our hearts have mountains of pride and valleys of despair, and it will take hard, dedicated work confronting ourselves with honesty and determination to cut through our edifices to make a level road for Jesus. St. John Chrysostom points out that some very interesting characters have been able to do that. The crooked things made straight, he said, are the publicans, harlots, robbers, magicians, as many as having been perverted before, who afterwards walked in the right way, end quote. We have to join the traitors and prostitutes and enter the kingdom of God. And this makes the kind of baptism that John calls us to the very opposite of the cancel culture. So the cancel culture is a new name for a very old phenomenon. The old story, The Scarlet Letter, shows what happens to Hester Prynne in the early days of the British colonies in America. She had a baby out of wedlock, and so she was sentenced to have to wear an A for adulterer on her clothing for the rest of her life. From that day forward, she was to be defined by her sin, no matter what else she did. Many of us know people who define us by a sin we committed, and it's one of the most helpless and hopeless feelings in the world. Many of us know people who define us by a sin we committed, and it's one of the most helpless and hopeless feelings in the world knowing that you can't change who you are. I always think of the movie Rachel Getting Married as a great screenplay turned into a not great movie. But it tells the story of a drug addict played by Anne Hathaway, who's estranged from her well-to-do Connecticut family. You only learn about halfway through the reason why. Her Her drug use led to an accident where she killed her little brother. This fact about her past has colored everything in her life and the whole family's life and made her an unacknowledged outcast from her own family. It is such an enormous factor that even while it drives much of what's happening in the movie, no one ever addresses it. When it finally comes out explicitly, 
She says, it was an accident. I was stoned out of my mind. Who do I have to be now? I mean, I could be Mother Teresa and it won't make a difference. Did I sacrifice every bit of love I'm allowed for in this life because I killed our little brother? She's defined by the sin and she can't break out of it. The devil wants to tell her, yes, this is who you are, whether you like it or not. And John the Baptist's answer is no. Baptism is the way we get to reclaim who we are. You see this in a partial way in John's baptism of repentance, which represented a clean break with the past and an effort to do better, but not what Christian baptism would be later on. But even with St. John's baptism, St. Gregory the Great, um, but even with John the Baptist's version of baptism, uh, a real break comes into play. I like what St. Gregory the Great, but even John's kind of baptism does something. St. Gregory the Great described how true virtue only comes at a cost. Quotes, there are some who wish to be humble, but without being despised, who wish to be happy with their lot, but without being needy, who wish to be chaste without mortifying the body, to be patient without suffering. They want both the acquired virtue and to avoid the sacrifices those virtues involve. They are like soldiers who flee the battlefield and try to win the war from the comfort of the city, end quote. That's what John's baptism taught and what Jesus wants us to teach by being baptized. That's what John's baptism taught, and that's what Jesus wants to teach us by being baptized. A key point of salvation history is when Jesus presented himself to John to be baptized. Okay, this is... Sorry, I'm kind of running out of steam toward the end here. That's what John's baptism taught. Jesus wants to teach us even more by his baptism. But a key point of salvation history is when Jesus presented himself to John to be baptized. He didn't do it to break with his past. He didn't need to be baptized, but to unite himself to all those who do want to break with their past. This is the moment that he who is without sin accepted to be numbered among sinners, as the Catechism puts it. Here's how the story goes in Luke. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. John's Gospel gives a little bit more context. In it, John says, I myself did not know him, for I myself did not know him, but for this I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. End quote. Break down this story and you see the whole Trinity being revealed, the three persons in one God. It was first revealed to Mary, then to Joseph. John's mom, Elizabeth, experienced the Trinity. But here it's clear once again. The Father proclaimed Jesus to be his beloved Son, and the Spirit descended upon him. The baptism of Jesus is a prefiguring of our baptism. The same things happen in our baptism that happen in Jesus's. Jesus comes where we are, enters our life, and brings the whole Trinity with him.
Jesus did not need to be baptized. He did it for us. He wanted to demonstrate what we should do to meet him where we are and make us more like him. And the Father looks on each of us after our baptism and says, This is my beloved, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He says this before we do anything. He loves us for who we are right now. We'll talk about we'll talk more about baptism in a few episodes, but let's get back to John the Baptist for a minute and realize how radical he is. But one point of his radicality is particularly thrilling, I think. John the Baptist has two traits that are not found together often enough. He was uncompromising with himself and generous with others. The 21st century, we tend to be the opposite. We tend to be very forgiving of ourselves and uncompromising with others. We excuse behavior in our company or department at work that we denounce in others. We overlook the flaws of our family or our political party when we eagerly point out the flaws in other families or other political parties. We're quick to condemn and slow to apologize. But consider John the Baptist. He lived a radical holiness But when crowds asked him what they should do, his advice was the very picture of civilized discretion. This is how it goes in the Gospel of Luke. What then should we do? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what do we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay, End quote. So John the Baptist wore camel hides and fasted, but he recommends that we wear cloaks and share our food. John the Baptist didn't tell the tax collectors, stop being a tax collector. He just told them, stop collecting more than is prescribed. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness, but all he had to say with soldiers was, do not practice extortion. He didn't tell them to give up their soldierly ways and reject violence. He's like a religious sister who fills you with consoling words and vivacious encouragement, but then goes home and does a holy hour for you and skips dinner to pray for your intentions. This is the great news for we who are baptized. No, we are no longer defined by the sin that we committed. We get to move on. We get to be a new person. And yes, we have to be radical, but it doesn't mean we have to go to extremes. We don't have to fast and wear camel's hair all the time. It means we have to be radical moderates, taking only what we need and doing all we can. Next episode, we're finally going to meet the adult figure that we've all been waiting for, the reason for the podcast. Jesus Christ himself will appear on the scene as we continue to look at how his story and ours intersect and how our stories fit into his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship visit us at xcorde.org.